All right, I, uh, I bring you greetings from the Pocono Mountains, which, I don't know, I've been there many, many times. I've gone there every year for the last 23 um, during this weekend, and I have to admit, I feel like Pennsylvanians are pushing, pushing it just a little bit with the mountains. <laughs> like, they're really beautiful up there, but, and I'm a, I'm a 30-year Pennsylvanian before I became a Delawarean, but... Pocono Mountains. Um, but I did, I, I did have a real spiritual journey this morning, so I came back, my family's camping, um, and I, I came back this morning, uh, and I, I passed through Bethlehem and Nazareth on my way here. Uh, so it was, it was uh, truly a, a remarkable, remarkable experience to walk the footsteps of Jesus. And uh, Allentown, I think, that's, I think Allentown is mentioned in uh, the Gospel of Thomas. All right, so, so let's, <clears throat> let's get really serious here for, them for a minute as we, uh, as we dive in. So I, I, I have a, a question for you. Do you ever feel like a plastic bag, drifting through the wind, wanting to start again? Do you ever feel, feel so paper thin like a house of cards, one blow from caving in? Do you know that there's still a chance for you? Because there's a spark in you. Baby, you're a firework. <laughs> Come on, show them what you're worth. Make them go, oh, 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 as you shoot across the sky, I, I. Those do not rhyme. You can't sing a song that says, make them go, oh, 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 as you shoot across the sky, I, I, and call it a rhyme. Um, but anyways, she did. Um, all right, so, so anyone know who, who sings that song? Katy Perry, yeah, fireworks song. Uh, and we're talking a little bit about that because one of the questions that this outdated song that's been overplayed uh, pushes is an exploration of what is the, the worth of a human, regardless of how you feel. And so we've kind of been looking at that uh, we're going to be looking at that question this morning in the context of the story that forms us, the big, grand narrative that begins our scriptures, that forms the foundation of how we, as Christ followers, understand our own origins. And, uh, and so last week, we got into it by talking uh, significantly about the first, mostly the first chapter, well, really only the first chapter of Genesis, and, and reminding ourselves, as we were talking, as Sean and I were talking about earlier, that the story is founded on original goodness, not original sin. The story is found, Genesis 1 is about original goodness. That's the starting point. We often mess that up. So, so really, when we get into this story, where we get sidetracked when we encounter Genesis, and the last generation, I think, has maybe gotten sidetracked, is by having the wrong debate, the wrong discussion. Uh, because so often, like, just, this is just reminders real quick, so often we talk about the point being when and the point being how of Genesis. And Genesis is not particularly concerned with those details. They're more concerned with the who and the why. And so, um, so we are keeping that in mind as we go in. When you tell a story about somebody, let's say at a memorial service to remember somebody, why do you tell that story? You don't tell the story to describe details of something that happened. My memorial service, someone's not going to say, you know, Keith, when he was 29, uh, he walked into a grocery store and he bought a gallon of milk for $2.67. <laughs> Anyone home? 
the, the reason we tell stories is not to just talk about details of what happened, it's to talk about who someone was. And the story helps inform who they were, right? So we tell stories to say, this is the kind of person they were like, to remember what the heart, or this is, this is what motivated them, this is why they lived the way they lived. So, so with that kind of thing in mind, that's maybe the image that is a better metaphor for the story that we're looking at as God's people remember where they came from and who they were. All right? So, so we don't just tell stories about stuff that happened. The value is who someone was and why they lived the way they did. So it is with this story. All right. And so last week, we specifically looked at how you understand the creation narrative very differently when you compare it up and against other creation myths that existed among other ancient cultures and religions, right? And so we just did, I'm just giving you a 30-second reminder. So we looked at like some of the ancient Babylonian stories and otherwise where there were gods like Tiamat and Marduk and, and the destruction of these gods, their battles against each other and the violence caused the death of one god which formed the earth, right? The body of a dead god formed the earth and, and, and the sky and the, the blood formed the oceans and things like this. And so in so many of the other narratives, the, the creation story is founded on, on, the god, on, on how the world is created is based on competition and violence among the gods. And then people emerge as a byproduct of that. But our story is very different, right? Our story is a God radically different from gods whose creations are founded on violence and competition. All right? We begin with a story where God creates with no need to beat anyone, and no response to any sort of violence, but a God who creates out of deep goodness. A God who creates out of a sense of community and a sense of wanting something to flourish, all right? And so that's our starting point, and that's part of the story, and we are a part of the story, which leads us to where we're getting to today, because Genesis is asking the question, what is God like, and why are people on the earth? And what's the connection between the two? So what is the core of our identity? Are we just plastic bags floating in the wind? Uh, so when God creates humanity, we talked about this last week just, just briefly. Um, and what I did was when we told the story of each of the days, I breezed over this because it's, it's this week. But when God um, creates humanity, we're told in Genesis 1, God created mankind, humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay? It's really important because we're going to move from this to the story in Genesis 2. But it's important to know that in the first chapter narrative, all of humanity is created in God's image. All right? This is our, our starting point. The image of God, he created them. Okay, and so, so we're, we're going to talk about three things or four things today. We're going to talk about image of God. We're going to talk about ruling and subduing. And we're going to talk about um, a woman coming out of a rib. Just a little bit. Okay, so those are the, the, the goals of, of where we're going to get to. All right, so let's talk for just a moment um, about, about this, this story in chapter 1. Because God is making this really good creation, and in the midst of all of it, the crowning achievement, the final thing that is created before God rests on the sixth day, is humanity. Okay? There's this moment. I talked about the, good, the word goodness 
last week, tov in Hebrew, and how, how it's something that's good at its core, not like a good shot in basketball, but something that is deeply, deeply right. And God makes humanity, and God takes a step back and looks at everything, and once humanity is made, the chorus changes that each day, it's been, it is very good, he saw that it was good, he saw that it was good, he saw that it was good, and after humanity, he takes a step back and looks at everything, and he sees that it's very good, Okay? So it's not just humanity that God is talking about. That's super important for our understanding of the world and the earth. It's all of creation now that people have inhabited it. Now God takes a step back and says, this is very good, tov ma'od. Very, very good. So there's this beauty here that is the foundation point. So the first thing that we get, so the word uh, for image there um, that we get, this, this image here, is the word selem or b'tselem. And so what that word means is it's, it's Hebrew, and it, it, it's derived from this image of, like, imprint. Like, you put your hand in wet sand, and then you pull it away, and you can still see the imprint, right? So to be made in God's image, oh, wow, I forgot I made that slide. Thanks, John. Uh, so to be made in God's image literally means that there is an imprint of God on humanity. Really, really important. That's beautiful. So, so, so every single person regardless of anything else, bears some sort of divine mark, divine spark, the selem of God. It's really important. You can see the shape. Now, selem has also this really cool other um, understanding at this time. So this is the same word that was used for what a king would do when a king would conquer a land. They would set up statues all around that land when they returned to their palace, okay? And these statues were intended to remind all of the, the, the people in the land that they were still alive because of the benevolence of their incredible king or emperor or whatever, okay? He would set up these salem all around the region. Now, of course, what we know is that hardly any of these rulers would have been actually, you know, benevolent in any way. But the imagery was supposed to be that when people would walk through their villages, they would see this and they would say, oh, that's a reminder of the fact that I'm alive. Because <laughs> he could have chosen to kill me. That's, that's the image. So how interesting that we are called, humanity is called the Tselem of God, as if one of the purposes of humanity was that people could look around and see others that reflect the one in charge, so deeply that they could be thankful for the life that they have. Think about it. If we would look around, if, if, we, if we were that good at, at representing the God of the universe, the God who loves so deeply, that every single time that we looked in one another's face, we were reminded of this creator of goodness who brings life everywhere that we look, right? We reflect the character and nature of the living God. How are we doing with that? I feel like we have some work to do, friends. I feel like I have some work to do there. But what an image that we get at the foundation story of how we came to be. All right? Um, this, this image-bearing understanding is the foundation of everything else that flows from it. Everything else that we understand about anything has to come in terms of humanity, in terms of our life, in terms of our understanding of God. It has to come out of this. Because if you don't get this right, the, the cards start to fall. You start to be able to rationalize all sorts of horrible anti-Christian things. Things that look nothing like Jesus. How you treat others, how you view yourself. 
So, so we have to get this right. Um, and, and, and knowing who we are then becomes the first step also toward being able to, um, to do what we're actually called to, to do with our lives. So take a look at this um, Gordon Cosby quote. So this is, this, uh, Gordon Cosby was a, a pastor and founder of the Church of the Savior in D.C. that now has all of these missions all over, made a tremendous impact on the world, uh, has, has been called the most significant American Christian pastor that nobody's heard of outside of the region sometimes, uh, and also happens to be Cammie's uncle. Uh, and so anyways, uh, I was reading this week something that he wrote, and, and here's what he says that I think is worth sitting with. We are made in our depths in the image and likeness of God who is love and light. In God there is no darkness at all. Made in that image, we are beauty, we are truth, we are goodness. What God is, we are. We are unique, we are priceless. When we look at Jesus, we see human nature as it is intended to be, right? Last week we talked about how Jesus is the fullest representation of God, but also enters fully into humanity. Fully human, fully divine, Jesus shows us what human nature is, what the divine nature is. Our goal is to go down, down, and down into our own inner beauty and love, to rest in our own depths. Sit with that for a second. To rest in our own depths, to keep digging until we find that understanding of who God created us as. We commit together in community to being more and more ourselves, our real selves, and we commit to being more freely available to others in long-term, permanent, unconditional belonging. I think it's important that we, that we hold on to the last parts where he moves away from just being created in the image of God and starts to explore how it impacts our relationships. Because once we understand that we are the Tselem of God, once we understand that we have truly been created in God's image with inherent value, care, and meaning, every single one of us, then we can begin to actually have authentic community in a new way. We can stop with the, the false narratives of competition and comparison and external holiness and saying, I have it together and you don't, and looking at other people through the lens of critique or whatever, whatever false narratives we tend to gravitate toward. The foundation, seeing ourselves and seeing others as created in the image of God, is the foundation to meaningful community, it's the foundation to meaningful personal growth, and it's the foundation to being able to explore our calling. So we have an opportunity here. So I want to just encourage us to sit deeply. Um, all right, so, so let's look at what those who are made in the image of God, all humanity, what humanity is told to do. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Well, we've done that. That was, humanity was like, okay, we'll take up that first one and really, really be good at it. The next ones maybe are problematic, so we're going to talk about them in a second. Uh, we're going to talk about what, what we're called to do. In just a moment, we're going to come back to this, but we can't hit it yet until we go actually forward to Genesis 2, because Genesis 2 is the amplification of what any of this might mean, all right? And I'll, I'll explain it in just a second. So, um, so we're going to skip ahead right now, and we're just going to take, um, take a moment. Can we go? Yeah, there we go. All right, so we're just going to take a moment, and we're going to work our way through the story starting in Genesis 2-4, which is after the seven-day creation account. And you're going to notice two things here. 
number, number one, you're going to notice that Genesis 2 is written in a different style, and it begins in verse 4 with, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. And you might think, I thought we just heard that. I thought that's what the first chapter was for, and you're going to be right. And so there's two reasons. Well, there's multiple reasons, I think. I'm going to offer you two. One of them is just a guess, just a hunch, and the other one is legit. So I'll I'll do the good one first, and then I'll give you my opinion. So the first one is that chapter 2 exists to take, you know on a map, when you've got like a a national park map and where the national park headquarters are and all of the, the major like trailheads, it's really busy, so there's like a little square around it, and then it zooms out. So you see the whole map, and there's a little square, and then like on the other side, that square is enlarged. So you can see all the details. That's what we're getting here, okay? So what we're getting is in chapter 2, this little image of God created humanity in his image becomes enlarged. So we get this this glimpse at this is a significant part of the story. So we're going to lean into this, this creation of humanity even deeper, okay? That's number one. But number two is if you start to compare it fact for fact, you're going to find they don't line up. They don't all match, when things are created, you know, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. But it doesn't happen till the sixth day and all the trees and shrubs are already growing. So maybe, just maybe, this is God's little reminder not to miss the point, right? The point or not the mechanics of it all. Because these are the stories that were told about how God is creator and created good things. So maybe, maybe we don't need to work super hard to synthesize and, and fit all of these into the exact same timeline because maybe the timeline is not the point. Okay, so I just got us to verse 7. I'm just going to work through it. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, the Lord God formed man. That is, the word there is ha-adam. Okay, so the, the word adam means uh, humanity. All right, it's not given a proper a proper name as Adam until later in the story. Right now, it's just the Lord God formed humanity, a, a, a humanity, <laughs> a human, from the dust of the ground and breathed into, here we go, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We've just been singing about the breath of life. And how really cool is it that what we get is that the same word for breath is the, same, is the word for spirit in the scriptures. So what we get is God breathing, literally, his spirit to create life. Which, by the way, this whole thing that we're talking about is seeing the story through the lens of Jesus. Jesus, in John 20, verse 21, looks at his disciples after he's resurrected, and he said, I'm giving you my spirit. And what does he do? <sighs> yeah. He breathes on them, which sounds weird to us, because especially post-COVID, but... The point is that he says, I'm giving you my spirit to enliven your souls. So the God of the universe, the God of creation, breathes life into dirt to create life. And then Jesus breathes the same life, that same spirit, to enliven their souls and say, I am, I am giving you the energy to create the world that I've always intended it to be and to walk forever with me. How incredible of an image. We're seeing a through line, right? Like, let's not disconnect this whole wonderful story for the way it unfolds. So that's what we get. Um, and also, uh, the, the other thing about being ma- of mankind being made from the dust of the ground is really important. We have, and Ian and I talked about this f- 
four years ago, maybe. I, I don't know if you remember this. I mean, on stage we did, Ian. Um, about the reality that when you look at a story like this, we are tempted to think about humanity as being separate from the creation. Different is what the story shares, but not separate. Unique is what the story shares, but not separate. We think that caring for the earth is somehow doing something good for the planet that does not connect with, like, us. Like, we don't connect it to loving our neighbors. When, when we are reminded that our story's foundation is that mankind is created, humankind is created from the earth, from the very elements of the earth itself, we are reminded that we are not separate entities. We can't say, I want to love people and not deeply care for the earth itself. And when we are caring for the earth itself, we are caring for it and all of the inhabitants in it. This is an integrated storyline. And we don't separate these two things. And sometimes we very much forget that we are a part of the created world. We're a part of the earth. We're made up of the elements of the earth and we return to it. And so, so these things are important to hold on to from a story like this. And the man became a living being. Um, let's just be reminded of the incredible value once again. And we'll look at Psalm 8 maybe right at the end. But... but um, but, but the value of humanity is so high in this story. God spends time shaping, touching, breathing. There is energy and effort into this process. It's, it's incredible. Image of God. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. A river, he talks about these rivers that are coming in. I won't go deeply into it, but, um, but he talks about all the rivers that come and names them, Gihon, Pishon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. In verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. Work it. Um, to work it and take care of it. Now listen, this is really, really important because this happens before what we call the fall. So take note of the fact that God creates a garden, and apparently, it's, like, incomplete. Apparently, there's still more to do. Because one of the tasks that God gives the first human is to work it. Is to actually do something with it, and to take care, to tend it. So, so right off the bat, um, we, sometimes you see the um, little bumper stickers that say God's original plan is to hang out hang out in a garden with a bunch of naked vegetarians? Have you seen that one? It was big in the 90s. But, but like, it makes you laugh, but it's not true. It's not true. God's original plan here, if we're going to take this storyline, is, is to start in a garden and end in a city. Now, it's a garden city at the end, but that's the, that's the story. There is an intent for people to play a role in developing the world and the land and all of its inhabitants. But it's really important that we see that, that the, the purpose is to work and take care of this garden, to tend it. But that's not a, that's not a byproduct of sin, not in the story. It's just a byproduct of purpose, of being created in God's image, means being created to continue to create, to develop, to make, make things that are beautiful and good, and to bring, bring goodness about. So, so this, is, this is really, really, really crucial um, and, uh, and it keeps going. We're not going to uh, hit, like, the whole thing right now. 
but, uh, but God keeps going uh, with, with this man, and he says, um, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but not from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to talk about that next week. It's too big of a can of worms to open up, because when you eat it, you will truly die. So, so anyways, what I'm going to do is we're going to take a step back now to the original command that we got, okay, in Genesis 1. And now we're going to talk about ruling and subduing. Okay, this is fun. All right, so the commandment that is given to people. All right, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So you get three commands. Fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. Okay, so we just talked about filling the earth. That was like, check. Now, interestingly, people have said, subdue it, rule over the fish and sea. They've said, yes, thank you, we will, and we'll do it very well. We will. We will rule and subdue. We love those words, God. Thank you. We're going to rule and subdue. But the problem is that we don't do it particularly well. And part of that is because of these words themselves. They're very problematic. <laughs> uh, and, and, and humans have had so much trouble with the concepts behind what it means to rule and what it means to subdue. So let's break those down for just, for just a moment. Um, rule, and in the Hebrew, that word is radah. Um, so let's look at rule first because subdue flows out of that. So radah in the scriptures, it, it is often understood as to suppress or to dominate or to tread down. And, and that's, that's really what the word does mean. It, it very much means to, to control um, and, and to, to rule over with power, all right? And so here's, here's the thing, though. We can look at that and we say, all right, this means we need to be strong rulers and we need to take control in the world. The problem with that is that every single time in the scriptures where that's what people do, God comes in and criticizes and has to set them straight. So the natural inclination of how to rule in this Radah way is actually not appropriate for the nature of, of the kingdom. And so, so what we see um, is that, that with God, and I'm going to explore this in the scriptures, with God, ruling always looks like care and leadership in the Jesus way, servant leadership. So, so listen to this, these commands about how people are ruling. In the book of Leviticus, we're, um, the, they are told very, very strongly the prophet is calling God's people on the fact that they are starting to rule like everyone else. So part of the command is don't, over, don't rule over people ruthlessly, but fear God. That means understand and respect the heart and the character of God as you lead and rule. And in Ezekiel, this super harsh critique about um, the leadership of Israel, you eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, and you slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You haven't strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. This is a problem, according to the prophet. He's saying, you are ruling people the wrong way. There is a way to rule. And it doesn't look like harshness, and it doesn't look like brutality. It looks like justice. looks like mercy. People continue when they use top-down power to understand what, it, what humanity's call to rule looks like. They continually miss the way that God's rule is supposed to happen. Biblical scholar Tim Gettert says that the word rule implies, when looked at in the whole story, justice and mercy offering help and protection with the goal of ruling to create shalom. 
and shalom is wholeness and wellness and true peace among all things. So the true sense of what we're getting at when we talk about ruling the earth, it's actually reflected in King Solomon's prayer to be a good ruler in the Psalms, in Psalm 72. Solomon's praying about, um, to God to help him rule well, and he says, For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. This, right now, this is the glimpse that we are starting to get for what the call of humanity to rule might look like. It's going to be confirmed with Jesus in a moment. But, but once we get ruling right, then we can talk about subduing. Subduing is interesting. Again, it's a pretty violent word. It means to, like, employ force to control and bind up, okay? So, so this, this word, kabosh, means, like, really intensely, like, Grab and stop. It's a very physical word. It's a very earthy word. So, so what does that look like, to, to subdue the earth? We think about in, in, in like to beat the earth down to submission, right? Like what, if that's our calling, what, what do we do with that? How is it supposed to look? Uh, the point, however, when we look at the whole story of the scriptures, is that the things that we are called to subdue, when we are called to subdue the earth, and we look at the character of Jesus, and we look at all the stories throughout all the scriptures, the things that we are to resist and overcome is anything that destroys God's good plan for all of creation. So we are to work hard to stop oppression and violence of anything that lives and breathes. We are to work hard to keep evil in check so that we represent God well. But that sort of leadership is going to look vastly different than Babylon, vastly different than Rome, It's going to look different from our mainstream politics. It's going to look different from CEO best practices. Ruling and subduing the earth in God's way, it's going to look like Jesus. And thankfully, we don't have to just kind of figure this out in our heads. Jesus actually uses both of these words in the New Testament. And it happens in a conversation in Matthew 20. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and they start to get into this argument about what it means to rule well. And they want They want power and they want influence, all right? And Jesus holds, he's like, hold the phone and just pauses things in the midst of this. They're they're kind of talking among themselves, all right, about what, what greatness looks like. And he says, you know that the rulers, there's the word, the first one, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it, there's the second word, over them. And they're high officials, so we get ruling and subduing. The word, the word lording is the same word, it's just the, it's the um, Aramaic word for the, the Hebrew. Um, Lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. All right, so Jesus is about to give a lesson on what ruling and subduing looks like. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to, first, to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, for all those who love being in leadership, who love having influence, Jesus says, great, humanity's call to be influential and to rule well is going to look like laying your life down. That's what my way of ruling looks like, even to the point of death. It looks like love, it looks like servanthood. It looks radically upside down from the way that the world understands these things. 
And you will always, even within your Christian communities, you're going to be battling this. Because it's human, it, we, we have this propensity to do our own thing and to want to rule our own way independent from connection with God and God's character. All right? And so, so this is, this, um, in, uh, in the, the same statement in the book of Luke, Jesus follows it up with, I am among you as one who serves. Um, and so, so this idea of servanthood forms the foundation for how we tend and care for all of the earth and in our roles of leadership um, and, uh, and influence anywhere, everywhere. All right? And so, so it's very, very significant um, that we understand that this is all intended to look like Jesus, and Jesus clarifies these things that we've kind of messed up so much. Um, and I, I already mentioned, you know, ruling and subduing all of creation, it means working for complete wholeness in all areas, right? It means understanding that there are environmental implications and that there are societal implications and that there are interpersonal implications for how we use our influence. And it always needs to be consistent with Jesus and happening in connection with God, allowing God to continue to lead us and not trying to be independent in ruling and subduing, not independent in character or in um, relationship. So we not only have to rule in... uh I just looped on something. We not only have to rule in the character of Jesus, but we have to rule in actual physical connection with that source of life. It has to be both. All right. So, there is, part of this is our image bearing, and part is partnership. Now, there's another aspect in partnership that we need to notice, and this is how partnership is intended to work between people. It's about to get dicey. All right. Let's take a look back. So, here's what's happening. I'm just going to lead up to this for a moment. So, what happens um, in chapter 2? Where did I put my... Did I put a piece of paper somewhere? Pause for just a moment. Seriously, does anybody see Genesis 2? How do you lose a piece of paper that's right here? Oh, there it is. Okay. We're, we're back, friends. Okay. So, so, what ends up happening is after this first command about the, the trees and what you should not eat from, all right, the Lord God says in chapter 2, verse 18, it's not good for mankind to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. All right. So, we get women, and they are Azer. And you may have heard, if you've been in the church a lot, the, one of the literal translation is helpmate. And so you might have heard messages that say, God creates men, and then women are created to serve as helpmates. Um, and this is the, just the natural created order of things. Now, there's two really important things that we need to understand. Number one, our scriptures are fully human and fully divine. And they do absolutely reflect a patriarchal culture. There were assumptions that were made three thousand years ago, okay? We're not talking about a document created in 2021, all right? So there were assumptions that were made there um, that, that carry on today, and it does not do us well if we don't acknowledge that there is a lot of patriarchy that is present in the scriptures as people try to work through all of this, okay? So that's number one. Secondly, when this scripture is used to suggest that women are, women's roles are to be really helpful supports and assistance 
uh, roles to men. We need to understand this is the only time in the scripture where this word is used to speak of women. Do you know where it's used in the other times? I will tell you. I'm going to keep going. Here we go. This is over and over again. It's God, by the way. It's God. Azar, every single time, it's God. Except for this time. All right? My father's God was my helper. Azar, he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. All right, let's continue on. What else? We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our Azar and our shield. God is our help. I lift my eyes up to the mountain. Where does my Azar come from? It comes from the Lord. All right, over and over. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. You can translate Azar as Savior just as easily as helper. Okay? So if you really want a story... God creates humanity, and he looks and says, someone's got to save him. And so God creates women. I, I, and I, I, I'm only joking a little bit because we, we've really used and twisted scriptures to, to do something that just does not look like the heart of Jesus. I mean, the way that we see Jesus valuing both of, of these genders with such equality, where Mary is the first one to proclaim the good news of the resurrection— where, where we have uh, female disciples who are allowed to sit at the feet of Jesus, where, where that was never allowed otherwise. I mean, women couldn't even get past the, the, first, um, the first layer of education. They weren't allowed. So how could they possibly learn enough ever to become rabbis? So, so what we get is a radical flipping of the story here, and we can't let this be hijacked by um, men who want to keep power, okay, to, to just be really, really clear and, and simple about it. So we need to understand that when we take a verse and decide that we have it all figured out and we don't look at it in the context of the rest of the scripture, we may really miss out and it, and it opens us up to abuse. Okay. All right. So point here, God designed us to partner with each other, all of humanity, for people to be in partnerships, for there not to be the same type of hierarchy that exists around there. We'll talk about it next week. That's actually listed as a consequence of the fall, <laughs> not as a part of creation. I always wonder why we, why we argue for something that's so clearly listed as a part of, of the, the reality of sin in the world. Uh, it, it doesn't particularly make sense. Okay, um, so we're just going to look. So, so there is this fascinating story, and what the fascinating story is in Genesis 2 is that all of these animals are brought before Adam for him to name. He's, he's ruling, he's tending, He's subduing, you know, this is all a part of this caring for them, and naming is a, an act of care. But in the midst of this, apparently God is looking for um, partnership, and none of the animals work. And so, so what ends up happening is he causes Adam to go into a sleep and pulls and forms this woman out of a rib of Adam, and the point being, the only thing that's suitable for true partnership is more humanity, <laughs> For the type of partnership that God desires to work alongside and work with. And so, so that is where this image comes from when it says, you know, and this is why, you know, a, a, a woman will leave her father and mother and, and join in. This imagery is all related to the fact that because people are intended to work in deep, meaningful partnership together. Okay? We sometimes take this and try to use it for all these definitions that are not helpful. That, don't, that are not what's being talked about in this particular passage. 
So we need to be really, really careful with that. So what we see then, if we're looking at the larger tent, is that both are created in God's image. Both are given the call together to partnership. Once again, Genesis 1 reinforces this so deeply when he says, you know, God created them in his image. God created them, right, over and over again. And then when we, when we take a look um, at the partnership on a larger level, the idea that God intends partnership, uh, whoops, that was, that was on me. God intends partnership and that that partnership is going to look like people with God and people with one another. And we understand that's one of the big thrusts of this story. Then we, get, then we can just see it coming everywhere. Come follow me and I will send you out to fish for other people. So Jesus is saying, I want to partner with you. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. I've called you friends because you've learned. For everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. So there's this friendship. Jesus is saying, we are partnering together for this creation. John 14, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things because I'm going to the father. He's saying, I've intended people to continue the work of redemption through my spirit. And of course, Acts 1.8 which we're celebrating in Pentecost Sunday today. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So God longs to partner with people, and God longs for people to partner with each other in ways that are full of dignity. This language is consistent, and it's a continuation from the words that we see in Genesis. This is our beginning. Oh, my friends, you were made for this. You were made for this. We are made to care for the earth. We are made to tend it and its inhabitants with compassion to reveal God's kingdom as, it, as being made in God's image and living as God's representatives in the world. This can feel overwhelming. Like life is hard. This can feel really overwhelming. I get that. But the invitation to partnership with God is not intended to be a burden. It's intended to speak purpose. It's intended to speak value into you, into your pain, into your passion, both of those things. Because it's a part of who you are coming out from your deepest identity. You are so valuable in all of creation. Baby, you're a firework. Can't believe I used that quote twice. My 14-year-old boys are not going to want to be in this room with me next week. Sometimes though, we we act nearly worthless. And we don't know how God could love a wretch like me, right? We call that, sometimes theologically, we call it worm theology. And, we, uh, and while it's a valid feeling, <laughs> sometimes I feel unlovable, we need to remember that's not actually the truth. The truth is that we are created in God's image, endowed with unbelievable value and worth dying for. That's what's been declared as the truth. The truth is Psalm 8, when, when uh, we're talking about the psalmist is saying, when I look at the heavens... What are humans? You've made them a little lower than God. You've made them a little lower than God. This is incredible. What a gift we've been given to be given the image of God in us. So there is beauty here. Of course, God gives us free will continually. We can choose if we want to participate in that partnership or not. We can choose whether we want to live differently than most of the world in our way of leadership or not. The choice is always going to be ours, but I am asking you and imploring you to explore choosing the way of life with Jesus. 
lean into this deep gift of identity and purpose that comes from being created in God's image and learn how you are uniquely created as God's handiwork to do beautiful, good works that God intended for you to do. All right, so here's your little wrap-up because I said a lot of words. Um, Really what we talked about today is that when we look at the story of God creating humanity, there's an identity and a purpose piece. The identity piece is that we have inherent value of self. So you are given dignity, regardless of how you feel or how others have made you to feel. We are also, because of being made in the image of God, we have an inherent value of others. What this leads us to is refusing to write off our enemies. Because they bear the mark of God's creative energy as well. So even the people that we think do wickedness and evil in the world, that is not the only thing that defines them. And this keeps us compassionate because we understand that you, my friend, even though I may disagree with you vehemently, even though I may work against you if you are oppressing other people, your humanity is still valuable. You are still created in God's image, and I will honor that even though we disagree, even if I believe that some of the things that you are doing are very harmful. And then purpose We just talked about these. We partner with God as agents for goodness and we partner with each other in healthy, workable, between people and people, between genders, all of these things. We are created to work together for that purpose of joining God and becoming agents of goodness and redemption and reconciliation. Ah, This is good news. Today was a little bit more intense with information, which it always is when we do Genesis. It's been like five years since we dove into this stuff. Um, So, Maybe less like inspiring and here's all the practical elements and more like do a little bit of deep theology during these, these weeks a little. Um, so let's just be still for a moment, allow some things to, to sink in. Uh, and I think, uh, unfortunately, man, I love having dialogue, but I, we had too much to get through today. Um, I'll give you a couple questions here that you can sit with, but let's just, just close your eyes. Don't, sorry, I shouldn't even put that up. Let's just keep it blank for a moment. Just take a deep breath. In the midst of all of the information that was just tossed your way and all of the requirement of listening hard, I want to invite you just to be reminded that you are simply created as human beings, not human doings. Created as loved image bearers of the God of the universe. And you don't have to do anything about it. You are just allowed to receive that. And Lord, as we sit with our identity as image bearers, I do pray that it would open up the doors in our minds and our spirits of creativity with how much you love us that might open us up to how you want to use us each uniquely and differently in the world to represent you and be agents of your love and care and rescue.